Thank you for joining us today as Andy Keppel continues the series, Looking to Glory. Paul reminds the church that Christ has ascended to heaven, but he's not left us to the world, and he has not left us to ourselves. Join us in the celebration of Christ's sufficiency as we remember the grace shown to us individually and learn to stand on the foundation of gospel hope as we live out our renewal corporately. Let's worship together. Um, good morning. <laughs> I want to uh, <clears throat> thank you for reading that, Andrea. That's a big text, and I'm just going to say up front here that I'm going over it at 30,000 square feet, but this is a text that people need to hike through with a camera and a notebook. Um, but I want to go back, if you can, real quick to uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 15. And Gabe prayed that the Spirit of God would come upon this church. Um, I'm thankful to, to be able to, to preach, um, but you don't need to hear from me. You need to hear from God. And you need the Spirit of God to fall upon this church. And let me tell you about that God. The Son, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Father God, that is the spirit that we want with us today. We want the spirit with us today that has dominion over all powers, all authorities, all accusations, all manifestations of evil, Lord. Would you fall on your church right now, God? and reveal yourself to us in this time as you've been doing through song, as you've been doing through prayer, Lord. Convict us of our need for you, God, but help us rejoice in the hope of you, we pray. So there's a lot going on in, uh, in, uh, in this verse today, and it, it feels like I give you guys the same introduction every single time I preach. Um, I did it last November, and I said, hey, this is a big text. This is really hard for me to grasp. There's a lot going on here. It was really difficult. And then once I did, I realized how desperately I needed it. And I, I should think that I should be scared, and you should be scared, if I ever don't approach it that way. You know? If I ever open up the Bible and I'm like, oh, check it out, a list of stuff to do. Cool, check, 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 check. Sweet, when do I get my harp? You know, um... You know, like, I totally got this. I understand this. Sort of like the rich young ruler who said, Jesus, what do I have to do? Good teacher to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, you know, the commandments, do this and this and this and this. And he's like, done. All of these things I've done since my youth. Um, and, and if we approach this, we're like, the Bible says do this. And you're like, done. Um, I think Paul has a list of virtues here, virtues and vices, that if we weren't careful um, we'd be tempted to just make it into a scorecard. And we'd be tempted to 
check it off and see how we did and like the rich young ruler, we'd probably check all the boxes and say, you know what, God, on the whole, I'm doing okay. Uh, And then Christ, like he did with the rich young ruler, would look at us and he would love us and he would say, one thing you lack. And um, something that would make your face fall. Something that you had hoped he wouldn't call out. Something that you had been keeping. Um, I don't know if, you, if anybody has ever been part of an organization where you have audits. Uh, you know, a compliance audit or an insurance audit or an accounting audit or something like that. Um, but in those audits, you don't offer information uh, really, if your insurance company, like for instance, the insurance company asked the church, like, hey, how many, how many cars, you know, park in your service? You, you don't say, well, we have 176, I don't know how many we have. We have 176 stalls and three of them are ADA. Uh, but if we need to, sometimes we park people on the hill. We'll put people past what that uh, garden thing used to be over there off the pavement. Sometimes we have people going down the driveway uh, and into the highway. If we really need to, we park in people's driveways across the road. And, you know, we have people walk across the highway to come to our services. Like, you don't say that. You say, we have 176 stalls. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying, please, I'm not saying lie in those things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you're asked a specific set of questions because it's a standardized audit, right? Companies prepare for these questions. And when you answer those questions outside of uh, the scope of what the company's prepared for, it opens you up to being asked something that you're not prepared to answer. That's why you answer the questions that you're asked. And when we study a text like this, which is a really big text, you could open it up and you could go, okay, he says, take this off, do that, do that, do that, do that. Done. All of these I have done since my salvation. Um, And then there's more to it than that, though. And Christ would look at us and love us and say, that one thing you lack. And our face would fall. And that's where I get stuck in these passages. Um, My instinct personally, is to go to these things. This is why I had such a hard time with it. To go to the list of don'ts and do's here and double down on being a good person. Um, you know, and being more careful in my speech and my conduct. It's like, you know, hey, if I get angry and I can't calm down and, you know, by counting to five, maybe I should count to ten. You know, maybe, yeah. If I have desires which I satisfy through websites or online chat rooms or something like that, maybe I should disconnect my internet. Maybe, probably, you know. And if I'm greedy, if I have a hard time controlling my spending or I'm hoarding things, maybe I should put somebody else in control of my spending money. Maybe, yeah. Um, those, you know, those things probably wouldn't hurt, the, you know, but they'd be curbing your behaviors. And, and uh in biblical counseling, these are things that we do. We say like, okay, so this is a sin that you struggle with. This is something that you have a hard time with this. How can we programmatically alter your life so that you have less opportunity to sin? That's a legitimate approach and it helps, but it's not getting at the root. And Paul referenced this in chapter two, if you turn back to it, when he was railing against the self-imposed rules that the Colossians were having foisted upon them by the Gnostics. Remember, you flip back to the middle of the last paragraph of chapter two, The church had been invaded by these Gnostics, by these heretics, by the Essenes, um, 
and they claimed you know, like this special knowledge of God and special version of holiness that could only be attained by doing all of this stuff. And then Paul rails against it here. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, not in that order. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, these are based on human commands and teaching. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, false humility, and harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any real value in restraining sensual indulgence. And then in this chapter, Paul starts getting at the reality of the Christian faith, which is diametrically opposed to all of these other faiths. The end of chapter two, that part we just read, which is really the only part of the letter where Paul actually addresses the thing that prompted the letter in the first place. Um, He says, guys, all of this stuff that they're telling you to do It's a trap. It'll leave you feeling worse than you started because you will have put in all of this effort, exhibited all of this restraint, and at the end of the day, you will still want what you want and you'll live for yourself. You will still do whatever you need to do to satisfy your desires. Kind of like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit murder. But I tell you, if you've even been angry with someone, you've committed it in your heart. The problem isn't our behaviors. The problem is our heart. And then here in Colossians, if you turn the page, in in my Bible you turn the page. It's It's right there. It's helpful. And he says, instead of focusing on what you can and can't do on this earth to combat your sin, why don't you look at what Christ has already done about it? Why don't you set your mind on the holiness that Christ has already secured for you and offered to you instead of this holiness that you hope for? In futility, you can secure for yourself but will ultimately die in pursuit of. Set your mind, he says, on things above not on earthly things. You know, Paul's saying here, saying, I know what you want. You want to be new. You want to be clean. You want to be accepted. You want to be blameless. You want to be shameless. You want to be loved. You want to be sought out. Friends, he says, it's all there with Christ. Get your eyes there. And that's what he's introducing in chapter 3 here. It's all there. It's already yours in Christ. And this isn't like one of those, um, one of those swanky malls that you go to where you know, they have the really expensive stores and they don't put price tags on anything because like, if you have to ask how much it is, you can't afford it. You can ask how much it costs. In fact, he tells us right here in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Church, we stood neath a debt we could never afford. And yet, Paul says, it's yours hidden in Christ with God. And as we start jumping into these verses today, I'm just going to tell you now, because there's no guarantee that my message will reveal this with any degree of lucidity, that Paul is telling the church about their identities as new creations in Christ. 
He's telling them how to live now like what they are yet becoming and not meritoriously, but thankfully. Paul says, put to death in this section. Therefore, he says, let's start to live our lives in light of this new reality. His therefore indicates, as therefores do, when you see a therefore, you ask, what's it there for, right? What follows is dependent on what came before, namely that the old man died and the new life is hidden with Christ in God in light of, in light of this, not in pursuit of this. What follows verse four is not a list of didactic ultimatums that the church is expected to keep in order to garner God's favor. He wants them to know Christ and he wants them to know that their old nature is being supplanted by a new nature, that the old nature is taken off because it no longer fits the man. Spurgeon says, do not imagine that any imitation of Christian manners will save you. Do not conceive that hanging upon your lifeless branches the semblance of fruits will transform you into a tree of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Oh, no, he says, the sap within you must be changed. The life of God must be infused into your soul. You must be made one with Christ or you cannot serve him. So going through the text here, he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then, and then Paul lists a bunch of characteristics of the old nature I'm not going to go into. We know what they are. We're familiar with them. They're vices, you could call them. Later, he says, you're supposed, these are things that were part of the old self, which you have taken off. And then he says, we put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And then he lists out a bunch more distinctions. These are interesting. Gentile and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, and declares that in the new man, these distinctions are no longer relevant because Christ is all and is in all. And understand that when he's listing those things out there, when he says Jew and Gentile, two of those represent humanity in its entirety. In the eyes of the Jews, you're a Jew or you're something else. That's it. That's all of the world. And so the distinction alone encompassed everything. And Paul was just driving this point home. He's like, I don't care if you're tall or short. I don't care if you're man or woman. I don't care if you're standing up or sitting down. None of that matters anymore. And the fact that he doesn't call out other distinctions like gender does not exclude them from this statement. Lightfoot says, Christ is all and is in all. Christ occupies the whole sphere of human life and permeates all its developments and there are no reservations from where Christ is excluded. So, old and new. There's a couple things I want to point out here. First of all, taking off the old man, putting on the new man. Paul uses this imagery a lot. You find it in a lot of his letters, the old and the new, born into the flesh and then born into the spirit, born into the law of sin and death, reborn into the law of grace. And you gotta understand, this is not like something that's factory certified refurbished. When he's making you into a new something, he's not giving you a paint job and a new charging cable. Our old pastor, um, Pastor Bonner once preached a sermon on Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he took us through the, uh, the etymology of the word and the nature of the word transformed 
from that verse, the Greek word metamorpho, which is metamorphosis. Everybody in school knows that because then he went from etymology to entomology and he taught us about caterpillars and butterflies and it was, it was really cool. You know, the butterfly, when it goes into the cocoon and the chrysalis, it liquefies and it comes out as something completely different and the name of his sermon, this is the only thing I remember from his sermon, but it was God doesn't want a better worm. When the butterfly emerges from the cocoon, it's not a worm with wings. It's something else entirely. It's a whole new creation. And this is what Paul is talking about here. He says, you're putting on your new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. He's talking about the transition from a being of one nature to a being of an entirely different nature. Not a nicer version of the same nature. Not a worm with wings. The spirit of, the Christ, of, of Christ is remaking us entirely through a knowledge of God. And this is why I wanted to spend time just sitting in verse four last November. Do you remember that? When I had you guys say that verse to each other and then I had you say it to me and, and it was that awkward time. But it was a promise that is important because it reminds the church in Victoria or online or wherever you are um, as it reminded the church in Lycus Valley that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. It reminded us that A, Christ is our life and we have everything we needed him. B, his authority is absolute and his return is certain. Did I say B or two? C, C, <laughs> When he comes back, everything that is imperfect in me, everything that is imperfect in you, everything that is imperfect in this world will be remade perfect, not worms with wings. New creations entirely. It won't be just, you know, me, but I keep the rules. You won't have to tell me the rules anymore because the rules were designed to keep me from doing the things that I simply will not have in my nature a desire to do anymore. They brought, those things brought death. They brought guilt. They got shame. And those are part of my old nature. Guilt, death, and shame, right? My new nature will be free of them and I will no longer have a desire to do the things that lead to them. For right now, however, or in first century Colossae, Paul is writing to a church located within a fallen city filled with fallen people in a fallen nation in a fallen world and what he's saying here is that we don't have to wait until the end of time to see where gospel rubber meets the reality. Secondly, old and new, as we see in verse 11, this new self, this comes with a new identity. I was at a, a job site in Nevada a few weeks ago where my company is building a new property, not my company, I, I mean, and we went out to have dinner with some of the site team with one of the construction crew and uh, it was one of the guy's birthday and uh, when I was able to get a moment aside with him and talk to him and wish him happy birthday and all that stuff he showed me a picture that he took on his phone and it was it was of my tattoo and he said yeah I, uh, I tried doing a google image search on this but I couldn't find anything I'm curious as to what this is, is this like some weird cult you're a part of or something like that um kind of um I said yeah you're not you're not going to find it. Those are, they're original, sort of. Um, the first five symbols that you see there are 
um, icons that I made based off of a series of sermons that Alistair Begg preached on expository preaching. Each one sort of represents a commitment, the co- a commitment that a preacher has to the text of Scripture as they prepare it for their congregation. It's kind of a, a checklist for the responsible handling of the text. And I'm not going to go into what each of them are, but there's a QR code there that'll take you to the Sermon on the Truth for Life website if you're interested in it. It's really good. Um, And I will say also, um, you should be thankful that every pastor here at Waterbrook adheres and takes very seriously their commitment to responsible handling of the text. So be thankful for that. This last one, though, this last one is one that I added um, because I think it's easy for me to remove myself from the reality that I hold out to others. And it's, you know, uh, I don't wear jewelry, so I've, I've got this here. But when I look at this, and when I explain it to other people, it, what it tells me is that, well, the, you know, there's the cross, obviously, and then the dot represents a person on the cross. And it tells me, A, that the person on that cross is Christ. B, it tells me that the person on that cross is not me. And C, it reminds me that it should have been. And any time a preacher or a teacher delivers a message and doesn't come from a position of how fiercely they need the gospel in their own lives, they're in danger of undercutting the unlikeliness that a holy God would save anybody. People need to hear it from people who were just as unlikely to be pursued by a holy God. I was confessing to John. This is a really hard text for me. I was confessing to John. Um, that while I have no problem admitting that I need salvation, right? I think sometimes people don't, they don't have a hard time admitting that, that uh, sometimes they do, but that they needed salvation. Um, and I'm rejoicing that I'm no longer destined for wrath. I sometimes have a hard time coping with the thought that I'm still the same guy that Christ had to die for. I mean, I said, it's encouraging to know that I'll be okay when I die but sometimes I have a hard time finding joy now. Andy, John said. (laughs) I wish you guys could see his face. (laughs) The gospel isn't less than fleeing God's wrath, but it's certainly way more. And looking at Really looking at our old self will either send us to despair or it'll drive us to genuine hope and thankfulness. And that's what these verses do. For my part, I need to keep reading the passages of Scripture that tell us that our old identity doesn't matter anymore. That Christ bought us a new identity and a new name on the cross. That everything that stood against me, that named me, that accused me, that told me, I don't deserve joy. I'm unworthy of forgiveness. I'm a liar. I'm a cheater. I'm a coward. I'm greedy. I'm prideful. I'm lustful. I'm angry. I'm wrathful. Anything that dares to give me an identity and tell me who I am, all of that has been nailed to the cross and I have been given a new name. You have been given new names, the forgiven, the accepted, the beloved of Christ. And I have to keep going back to these passages because an identity is a hard thing to shake. Change is hard and I fear hypocrisy. 
of being joyful in Christ because I'm still in this world and I'm still in sin. I still stumble. I'm still reminded of who I was and I rehearse to myself all of the reasons that I'm undeserving of joy or forgiveness. Yeah, it's hard for the world to sometimes let go of who we used to be, but I think we give ourselves an even harder time of it. It's kind of like the scene from uh, Shawshank Redemption where Brooks Hatlin, the prison librarian, gets paroled or gets released and he winds up taking his life because he had been at the prison for so long he was institutionalized. He didn't know how to deal with his life outside of the prison. And he kept trying to break parole so he could get back. And I had someone come up to me after the first service and say, you know, um, I, I, I had such a hard time. I don't know how to have an identity outside of what I do. I was a mother. And when my kids left, I didn't, I didn't know who I was. What am I now? I'm no use to anybody. And we have people that are coming out of addiction, coming out of all kinds of rebellion. We have people who are like getting better from physical afflictions and they say, I don't know how to be anything other than a broken person. God, help me. I don't know how to be this new person. And, and here's Christ telling us that we're free, telling us that there's no guilt, that there's no shame, there's no impending judgment, that the verdict on our lives has already been rendered on account of Christ's work on the cross. And the verdict is that we're judged innocent by the firstborn over all creation, by the one who is before all things, who holds all things together, who has been given all authority and who shed his own blood on the cross to reconcile all things to himself, And then I, as Keller says, dare to appoint a higher court and condemn someone whom Christ has already declared free. Shame on me. But you know what? For my life, he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. And as determined as I can be to hold on to the identity that I keep for myself, I promise you, brothers and sisters, Christ is infinitely more determined to call me his. Everything that is held out to us in Christ, mercy, acceptance, forgiveness, love, I look at it and I'm like, no, I don't deserve this. And he says, of course you don't. That's the point. That's the definition of grace. It's yours. Take it. Don't settle. And the list that Paul presents here, or the list that we keep in our heads, in Christ, these are not things to feel guilty about. These are things to rejoice over being freed from. These are the things that God will use to reach someone who's stuck in the same place. The things that allow you to say to someone who's hopelessly mired in sin, soaked with shame, weighed down in despair, to be able to say to them, oh yeah, I used to go by that name, but not anymore. We got to start calling ourselves by our new names because that's what Christ calls us by. And we got to start calling each other by our new names. All of us. Me and you. Paul says it right in the beginning of verse 12. This is beautiful. 
What does he call us here? What's our new name? God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Church, that's who you are. That's who you are. If your life is hidden in Christ with God, that's who you are. (laughs) Natalie Davidge did an Instagram live the other day and was just talking about who Christ is and she said, Christ, (laughs) she said, Christ is love. That's it. And that's everything. And I could just stop there and that would be enough. It was beautiful. Do you know that you're loved that deeply? Do you know that you're forgiven that completely? Do you know that you were pursued that fiercely? I hope you do. But I also know that we're buffeted by wars without and fears within. That it's easy for us to lose track of that. We get busy. We get complacent. We get caught up in activity or we get weighed down by what we see in the world or worse, what we see in ourselves. For my love is often cold. But he will hold me fast. And God, who knows that we are still in this world, left us a spirit of wisdom and his body, which is the church. So Paul, in these next verses, starting at verse 12, encourages the church, be the church. Be the body of Christ to each other. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Virtues of the new man, of the new creation. And then he says, I don't want to read into this. But he says, bear with each other. Kevin preached on Colossians at some point, and, uh, and I have a note in my Bible. <laughs> he said, Christians have baggage. <laughs> we do. He says, bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all of these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body we were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Brothers and sisters, our faith is a community project. Like we can see the majesty of God in the hills and the flowers and we can be made aware of God's power and presence in the storms and the night sky, but he has made known to the world the fullness of God in Christ and the message of Christ can only be delivered to the chosen of Christ by the church of Christ in the power of Christ. And as long as it is called today, the author of Hebrews says, we are to encourage one another and to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Now, has anybody found since coming to faith that you no longer need to hear these messages? Are you past that? You just come for the cookies? I mean, it's enough to get people in the door, granted, maybe. But Paul gives some guidance to the church as they work out their salvation and their new identity. And I want to point back up to verse 10 again in chapter 3 because it gives some context where we carry all this stuff out. What does he say in verse 10? I'm reading from NIV. Apologize for those who are in ESV. You have put on the new self, which has been completely renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. It's a finished work, done. Is that what it says? It says, being renewed. Present tense. Nobody's perfect. 
except for this one guy, right? One thing I remember um, from Bruce Washington's mom's funeral, which was one of the most beautiful funerals I've ever seen. It was so joy-filled. Bruce said, you know, my mom used to say, Bruce, there may be times when you don't feel like you're saved, but you are saved. (laughs) And that's an amazing legacy for her to pass on to her son, but I bet she didn't just say it to him. I bet she said it to anybody who felt like their feet were slipping, to anybody who was looking at the waves instead of Christ, to anybody who was looking in the mirror instead of at their Savior. It's a word that we need to be reminded of, and it's a word that we need to remind others of. Um, I am preaching today largely uh, because John sat with me for three hours in a coffee shop last Saturday. And let me tell you, he basically preached my sermon to me. I needed to hear my sermon, so he went through and he preached it to me. We sat together, we walked through the verses, we talked of Christ and his authority, we read Psalm 130. John recited to me all of the reasons that he hopes in God, all of the reasons that he's unqualified to be judge of anything, let alone himself, and reminded me that our actions flow from our identity. Tell me, Andy, where does that identity come from? where, right? The one that I give myself? The one that the world gives me? Or the one that Christ gives me? We have to remind each other to listen to what Christ says about us. We have to remind each other that our identity stands on a foundation of grace, not a foundation of accomplishment or worthiness. Let the word of Christ dwell, Paul says. Let it rule. Let it have authority as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit or spiritual songs of praise. These songs that we sing, these verses that we memorize, this isn't religious activity. This isn't stuff that we do. This is who we are. This is who we are. This goes back to our identity as God's chosen people and our tendency to forget it. We have these songs in our hearts because if we're not singing them from within, we'll start hearing the song of the world around us. We'll hear songs of dissatisfaction and disillusionment and despair. We'll sing songs of frustration instead of songs of gratitude. Gabe asked, <laughs> Gabe asked me last week, he's like, hey, verse 16, can you put in a good word for singing as a good worship pastor would do? And I'm like, I don't have to. It's right there. God said it. God says do it because it's for your joy and it's for your protection. John was, when he was reading Psalm 130 over me last Saturday, as I said, and uh, he said, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, and I just got, I will wait for you from the Gettys, which is based on Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, in darkest places I will call. Incline your heart to me anew and hear my cry for mercy. Lord, man, I needed to hear that. I needed to have that song in my heart and I needed a good brother to come alongside me and remind me that it's in there. Whatever I was going through, whatever talons were in me that day, I needed John to sit with me and gently remind me to put my hope where it belongs. To remind me that I'm not the most qualified person to judge myself and I need to sit at the feet of the one who hears the one who forgives, the one who loves with an everlasting love, the one who calls me his. And this is what we are to be to each other, the bridge of that last song, not last song, the song before that. This is what heaven looks like. This is what heaven sounds like. I don't know, I get it mixed up. But this is who we are. We're a microcosm of heaven. My friend, um, Terrell, 
pastor of church in North Minneapolis. We did a, a youth group mission trip with him in Minneapolis several years ago. Pastor T, he has an amazing story of God delivering him out of a life of drugs and gangs and crime in Chicago. And he came to Christ in a federal prison in 2004, and he shared the testimony of the influence of his foster mom, who he calls Grandma, who faithfully pursued him for Christ until he finally relented and bent his knee to Jesus. <laughs> Amazing. This guy's got such an amazing ministry. Even now, maybe you've seen some of our posts on Facebooks or heard us ask for prayer for him. Friends, he's at the end of a five-year battle with cancer. They've stopped treatment, and he's just wrapping things up and dialing things down. But he's still sending out some 300 people, text messages, scripture, every day. Every day, letting people know about the hope that he has in Christ and marching toward his final day, he said to me a few months ago, he's like, brother, as long as I'm alive on this earth, I'm going to be telling everybody I can about Jesus. And when I die, I'm going to be doing the same thing. He knows where his hope is. He knows where he's going, and he knows he's almost home. He knows that there's nothing that anybody could do on this earth that is less deserving of forgiveness than what sent Christ to the cross for his soul. And as powerless and as helpless as we can feel sometimes dealing with the sin and the suffering of this world, if we let the word of Christ, the message of Christ, the hope of Christ rule in our hearts, we approach our relationships from a position of gratefulness. We remember that when Paul says, bear with one another, we don't just skip over it. Paul's saying, they're being remade. And so are you. Your renewal comes with evidences of grace that they need to hear and vice versa. We need to sing, Pastor Kevin said a couple weeks ago, because the person next to us might need to hear us sing because they can't sing right now. They need to hear your story. You need to hear theirs. And the world needs to see that this ragtag bodily, body of socially, philosophically, culturally, racially, and economically disparate people works because the only relevant, distinguishing characteristic among them, as Spurgeon says, is Christ. Yeah. Old and new. Me and you. The hope of glory through and through. Christ in you, Paul said at the, at the end of chapter one. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And whatever you do, he says here, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Christ is all and is in all. Everything in these verses, from the renewal to the new identity, the forgiveness, the encouragement, the thankfulness, it's all rooted in Christ. It's all available to us because of Christ. He secured it for us through his obedience to the cross and he has been given authority to offer it to us. It doesn't mean that we just do what we want and we claim authority to do it in Christ's name. I think we've all seen that. It means that we align our outer identity with our inner one, with the one that's hidden in Christ. It means we take off the old man and we put on the new one, but we fall on grace when we mess up and we ask God to help us do better and we call our brothers and sisters alongside us and ask them to hold us accountable. It means we bear with one another. It means that we understand that, yeah, we all come with baggage like Christian from Pilgrim's Progress and it's the job of the church to bear each other's loads, 
but only bear it as far as the cross because it's not my burden to bear any more than it's yours. Lay it at the feet of Christ. It means that when we teach and when we admonish one another through psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, we sing songs that give people a glimpse of the glory of God. That reminds them of where their hope rests. That reminds them that a new day is coming. (laughs) See Diana back there. Howie Duncan used to say, whenever it was past the mic day at church, anybody have anything to be thankful for? Howie grabbed me and he's like, there's a new day coming. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And my wife has disabilities now, but she's going to have a new body in heaven. And he'd say that every single time. And sweet Howie, in his beautiful, dementia-addled mind, had so set his hope on Christ that when he could articulate nothing else, he could say, I know my Savior lives. Diana just reminded me he could sing every song. Church, this is what the new identity is. It's a new creation with a new hope, a new destiny. It's new desires. It's new joys. This isn't be the religion. This isn't be the institution. This is take what you have been given and tell other people where to get it because you're thankful. Because the wrath of God is coming like it says in verse 6 and we have been forgiven of much. Because you've seen the power of God and the hills and the storms and it terrified you and you've seen the mercy of God in the Lamb and it saved you. And it can save them. So when you see a list like this, tempted to say, okay, cool, list of tasks, vices to strike, virtues to strengthen, I better get to it. Remember who you are. Remember your true name. Chosen, holy, dearly loved. Cry out to God in gratitude, but humility and say, Thank you, God, for calling me your own and for purchasing me from my sin. God, thank you for vindicating your glory, which I scorned through my rebellion. But I have to be honest, I look at this list and I think, I've been struggling with these things my whole life. And if I knew how to be a gentle and patient person, I'd be doing it by now. Help me, God. I don't want to be that person anymore. And Christ will look at you and he'll love you. And he'll say, Beloved, I am with you always. You lack nothing. Right? Father God, thank you for the hope that we're not left on our own to do this. Thank you, God, that you placed the church here. Father, for all of our all of our foibles and follies, God. Thank you that you have redeemed us, Lord. Thank you that you have put songs in our hearts. And sometimes when that song isn't there, you put a song in someone else's heart and they can come along and remind us, Father, we don't have to worry about what we're being made into, God. We're not like anxious parents wondering what our kid is going to be like when they grow up. We know exactly what we're going to be like when we grow up, God. We're going to be like Christ. Father, help us persevere in that. Help us persevere in that. Help us help each other persevere in that, Lord, to sing songs over each other, to send words of encouragement, to sit and cry sometimes and remind people of their new name, Lord. 
And as we approach the Lord's table here, as John comes to break the bread with us, Lord, help us remember all things have been provided to us for life and godliness through Christ's blood shed on the cross, God. Thank you for that complete work. Would you, Father, for your glory, complete us. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.